Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Monday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We have our Sunday evening conversation with former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg on Ole Miss's rather lethargic win over Tulsa. What to make of it, what not to make of it. Jackson Dart's performance, some injury notes, and what four weeks of not playing a real game of consequence can do to a team and how the Rebels kind of turn the corner going into Kentucky. It's a good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it, so buckle up. But before we get to that, though, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by MIMS Insurance. Matt MIMS, independent insurance agent based in Oxford. Gas expensive right now. Every, groceries, everything's expensive you don't need to lose money on the insurance process just because you don't know exactly how to approach it. It can be confusing. Matt Mims takes care of that for you. He's an independent insurance agent that will shop your quote around. Whatever it is you need insured, that's a house, car, boat, whatever the case may be, he will shop it around to 10 different agencies and come back with the best possible quote for your needs. All you have to do is give me a call at 601 218 7854. His whole goal is to make the process e- as easy and as cheap for you as possible. You don't have to pay him to do it. He makes his uh, money by linking you with a uh, a plan from one of those 10 insurance agencies and a quote from one of those 10 insurance agencies. He's just happy to take your call. He loves doing business with Ole Miss people. You need to give him a call. Mims Insurance, Matt Mims, 601-218-7854. Give him a call. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox up three and a half units over the weekend on the NFL. Crushing it on the college over-unders. We'll have some more numbers on that late in the week. Uh, if you've met the man a couple times, had to square up with them so far this football season or looking to turn that around, you need to check out Skybox Sports Picks. They're the professionals. They're the only pe- way to profit in the long run. Certainly not going to do so based off a of lean 10 minutes before kickoff. Just go let Skybox give you a guide. You can try them for a day, try them for a week, do NFL, college football, NASCAR, whatever the case, whatever sport you want to do, whatever you want to try for however long you want to try it. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. All you have to do is go to skyboxsportspicks.com. Pick out whatever package you want. You'll get the pick sent via email in a very, very efficient-looking spreadsheet. Easy to read, easy to understand, and boom, you're one step closer to profiting because all those dumb bets you were going to make is just completely eliminated. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, old, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Weldon Rodenberg. It is our week four postgame show um, coming at you a day after Ole Miss's narrow win over Tulsa. And uh, hopefully this podcast will not be as lethargic as really everything about that game went. Um, a lot of stuff to dive into with this team. I don't know how much of it is necessarily significant. I feel like when we sit here this time next Sunday, it will be a much different conversation about what this team is, um, you know, in pen or Sharpie versus us just trying to go off of them playing four inferior opponents and sleepwalking through the second half of two of them and really laying the hammer down in the first and second half of the other two. Um, Rebels win, what, 35-27. They don't score a point in the second half. Um, you know, I would readily admit I went back and watched some of the game 
today was kind of in and out yesterday as I was playing in a golf tournament on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So I'll just kick it to you first um, <laughs> regarding that. Like, what did you make of this? What do you do? You make anything of it? What What was kind of your feel on how this thing went? Because clearly, it was not one where everyone left happy about the product. No, and that was actually kind of good to hear that Kiffin and even the players like understood that that wasn't the standard they had set. So that was that was good to hear from those guys. They know what they did not play very well the second half. Um, I mean, I kind of talked about it a little bit last week, and I don't want to say called it, but this was like the most classic look-ahead game ever. I mean, they have not played really anyone up to date. I mean, Georgia Tech fired their coach today. Um Looking ahead to Kentucky, Kentucky's had two straight look ahead games where they've, they've looked uh, pretty poor. Um, and even though they kind of came out in the first half defensively, it, it took them a second to get ready. Uh, I think the DBs uh, looked a little slow out the gate, but then they kind of handled them in the second quarter. They scored 28 points, really shut them down. Uh, but the second half, I mean, I think we'll get to it, whether it's here or later in the podcast, but you know, there was zero energy in that stadium in the second half, and the, the players kind of reflected that. Um, though you have to kind of make your own energy as a coaching staff and team. Uh, incredibly lethargic. Uh, probably the worst tackling display I've seen from a Kiffin team since, I mean, I, I think most people have said since like Arkansas of last year. But really, I mean, just overall, like maybe the worst I've seen ever from, from those guys. Uh, it was really, really poor. Uh, I think they really didn't handle the dual threat quarterback in the second half well. You know, we kind of talked about it a little bit before we started, but you kind of see that sometimes, especially in the NFL, if a backup has to come in and he brings a different dynamic that your your defensive game plan uh, eventually has to change. I don't really think they uh, changed well with that. I don't think they adjusted well. I, I think they let him out of the pocket, and they're kind of lucky that you know, he's a true freshman with really no experience and, like, couldn't make some dynamic throws because that could have gotten uh, a little dicey there towards the end if he if he could have made some throws downfield. But at the end of the day, they won. That was the most important thing. And, uh, you know, as we've been saying since the beginning of this season, uh, next week is finally here where they get to play a real team. Yeah, and that's uh, – it is glad to that we're finally at that point, you know, just literally from a content perspective <laughs> – if nothing else, I do think this was the best opponent Ole Miss has played to this point. I am not sure. I don't really know what I would have said if you'd have told me that in um, if you'd have told me that in August. Like I would have said, okay, maybe because obviously, what you know, Troy Central Arkansas not going to provide much of a test. Georgia Tech didn't have a. I mean, you knew they didn't have a good team going in. They were they quit. They quit. This was the most competent team they've played. I don't 100%. think they're necessarily very good, but they know what they do on offense. They know what they do on defense. They were most certainly the most competent team they've played. And uh, they kind of took it to the chin the second half. And there's no really no other way to say it. Yeah, they really did. And you're right. Competent is the the word to describe it. And then on top of that, you know, it's, it's kind of that in-between week where, I mean, I'll throw it to you. How much prep do you think they did for Tulsa? And how much prep do you think they did for Kentucky this week? Because that's something you pointed out to me a couple of times throughout the years we're doing this, where it's not, I don't think it's a thing where they just hundred percent, like I would act as if we're playing Kentucky this week and just roll the balls out there and play Tulsa. But there is a little bit of a different way you handle it when you have a game like Kentucky on deck versus Tulsa before this or insert whatever opponent had happened a couple times last year. How does that work? What do you think went into that? How, how much truth would you put into it? 
Uh, it's difficult to say. I think just the way that Tulsa runs their offense, they definitely had to scheme and prepare for that. It, it's a unique style. It's, it's something they have not seen yet. So I think defensively, they were probably incredibly locked into what they were doing against Tulsa and with, a, with Kentucky in the back of your mind, of course. Offensively, I mean, I just feel like they've been vanilla all four weeks. Uh, I mean, the running game has been like outside zone um, and some counter and, you know, a few powers here and there, a few QB powers, QB counters. It's, it's just not been super, you know, uh, diverse. And then, uh, you know, they really haven't gotten the ball to the tight ends much. It's just been pretty – it's been pretty vanilla in my opinion. And that's not – this isn't like a, uh, a dig on Weiss or Kiffin and their ability to call the plays and what they've been calling. I think that's just been the, the scheme. And to be honest – the first half, they put up 35 points. Like, you can't forget that. Now, the second half, yeah, it was what it was. It was not great. They couldn't run the ball. Some guys were in and out. You know, Evans had some sort of stinger. I think he seems to be fine. So, you really only had one running back um, getting every single – I mean, what do you have, like 25 carries? I don't have the stats in front of me, but, I mean, it was a lot. And, you know, that, that can be a little exhausting. 27, by the way. And 27. I those came in the second half. Right. Uh, I mean, then, you know, receivers separation was okay. I think, I think Heath played really well. I'll get, I'll get that to him. He played very well in his personal revenge game after the brawl last year, two years ago, whatever that was. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, you can dissect all of it, but I do think at the end of the day, they got the win and next week is now here. I'm sure that was in the back of their, their mind throughout the week. And Tulsa was a weird team in the sense that you mentioned it's a very unique offense. It seemed like a lot of spread old miss out, try to get guys in space and then kind of mix it in with what was a unique running game with two different backs, right? You like, we're, we'll get into the poor tackling aside part of it in a second. Like you mentioned that earlier, it's, it's weird that the, you know, you have a five, nine, I think that first kid was like 190 pounds and they come at you with another guy who's what's like six, two he's listed on t- Tulsa's a bruiser. It's like two a bruiser. 245, they only said on the broadcast 260, whatever. I'll err on the heavy side to make my point. But, like, that's 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 a load to bring down no matter what level of football you're playing at. They certainly have not played a running back like that yet. And, you know, it's a hot day in September. The crowd's pretty lethargic. Again, you're in that kind of look-ahead spot, and you got this kid coming at you 25 times, you know, over the course of an afternoon. I, it, you know, the – the ingredients were there, right? The conditions were right for something like this. That doesn't really necessarily excuse it by any stretch. And of course you would like to see them put together two halves, but if they came out and they scored two touchdowns in the second half, I'm not sure we'd be having much of this conversation, right? It's really just about how they came out in the second half offensively. Again, I thought the play calling was as vanilla as it's been all year, particularly in that second half. I don't know how strategic that was. It wasn't like, it wasn't like they were fully opening things up in the first half, but I mean, hell, like you mentioned, they scored like 27, 28 points. They just executed much, yeah. much better. And it was just, it, it, everything felt kind of vanilla and lethargic. And so, you know, I don't really know what else there is to kind of say about it from that aspect of it. This is getting more common in college football. And I don't want to like continue to beat a dead horse here and harp on the same point, but you're getting weird results on a week to week basis in college football. You just are. I mean, like you mentioned, Kentucky's kind of slept walk through those games. How did they finish against Northern Illinois? That game was close for like two and a half quarters. Was it not? It was, it was, it was tied at halftime and they kind of finished them out towards, towards the end. Uh, I don't remember the final score. They won by like 10 or 14, but that's two weeks in a row for them, um, uh, which is, which is, 
that's kind of like, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Maybe we're not that good. Um, but I, I feel like I've noticed it, you know, more this year than than in past years. And, you know, Absolutely. maybe that's a that's just, you know, me watching more football or you know, betting more games or whatever. <laughs> but uh, you see, I've just felt like there's been so many walkthrough games. I mean, even the team that we've considered like the juggernaut best team in the country, you know, laid a complete egg against Kent State. Um, now, Kent State, though they get lots of checks from getting their ass beat, they do have a really good head coach and a really good system. But at the end of the day, it's Georgia and Kent State. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have some sort of, you know, hypothesis on why that's the case. Uh, maybe, you know, next week after we kind of get rid of all these games, you know, we'll come up with a better reasoning. But it, it's clear that that has just been a real thing this year. And I don't exactly know why. And Georgia didn't go full on Georgia mode against Samford two weeks prior. I, I no. Like it, it's happening more and more. I don't really necessarily know the reason for it, but that's the reason I brought it up. I'm kind of right there with you um, on that. I've just something I've noticed more and it continues to happen. Last thing on this, the kind of lethargic part of it. Do you think with the way college football is headed, you got all this conference realignment going on. You're now about what? I was about to say five years, probably 10 years into these big neutral site matchups early in the season that are non-conference games. Do you think it's harder to get guys up and focus for games like this than maybe it was 15 years ago? Do you think that's possible? I think it, yeah, I think it's definitely possible. I mean, I don't see how you, you can say it's not. Um, I think there's just so much more out there about these guys. You can read so much more. Um, you can keep guys locked in as long as you want, but they're just not going to be focused against Tulsa. And especially – you know, and I guess it's kind of on the coaching staff to get them focused. And I'm not saying that they did a bad job of that. You know, kids will be kids. It, it is it is really, really difficult to, to do. Uh, but I, I, mean, I feel like it's absolutely more difficult these days. And, you know, like I said earlier, what that reason is, I can't exactly put my finger on it. Uh, but I, it's just really evident throughout all of college football for really any team. Yep, you're exactly right. And on that note, I guess we'll start with the quarterback piece. We got an announcement, kind of, I guess. There is now a starting quarterback. Um, Breaking news. It was dropped in the most (laughs) Lane Kiffin way possible in the second half of a, you know, lethargic effort against Tulsa. He finally just says, yeah, you know, we talked to Luke's parents. We have a plan for him. He is our backup quarterback. It's like anything to, to say anything except words coming out of mouth. Jackson Dart has won the starting quarterback job. He is the winner of this competition. Um, I don't think he'll be getting a trophy, but like you get my point. Kevin just seems so hell bent against like saying that he, even when he announced it as, as you know, when he finally made it announcement about it, it wasn't yes. Jackson Dart has won this competition. It's we've talked to Luke and his family and he's the backup. It's just very strange how that works. I guess we'll start there before we get to Dart. What do you make of that? What do you think that means? I don't think it means much. I think you got more out of the, the Luke Altmaier situation than he did Dart. We knew Dart was a starting quarterback. Yes, we did. N- nobody nobody for one second thought that he wasn't, you know, even from the first game, even when Luke started against Central Arkansas. And from here on out, you know, that's never really been in doubt, at least in both of our eyes and, and most other people's eyes. Uh, I think, you know, him admitting that he had a conversation with Luke and his family kind of leads you to believe that you won't be seeing him in four games this year. Um, and that he'll, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he'll transfer, but that they're not going to burn a, a year on him. I, you know, this is a possible red shirt here for him to, to make a decision on his future after that. I, I'm not committed to saying that that's an automatic 
assumption that he's going to be in the portal, maybe comes back and, you know, tries to compete again. Uh, I think that will be a difficult proposition, assuming Jackson plays well throughout the rest of the year. And, you know, I'm willing to give Jackson credit. I don't think he was the issue on Saturday. I thought he played perfectly fine. Um, you know, even better than perfectly fine. You know, so the, the, the passing offense, you know, I guess we'll talk about that in a little bit, but has been, you know, vanilla and whatever, but, you know, he's made throws, he's made plays with his feet. He's been good. So that's all we learned. We learned what we already knew. And then we kind of got an insight on what potentially could be happening with Altmaier for the rest of the year. Yeah. And the other piece of that too, is look, I think as you smartly pointed out a couple of times, you can't go through the year flip-flopping this thing. Like Jackson has a bad game in middle of October. You can't go to Luke off that. That's just never going to serve either party well but there is it as Buchanan pointed out last week when I was talking to him Kiffin was still doing the thing where he wasn't naming a starter right in the post game he said you know I thought Luke would have done great if he went first too speaking in regard to Georgia Tech at that point it seemed obviously evident but Buchanan said you know what I I, you know this may be a stretch but I don't I don't think he's fully ready to commit to it still because you've seen so little from him and again I thought he played pretty well for the most part on Saturday as well but they haven't had to have they haven't had very many situations where it's third and nine and you're down four points in the third quarter and he's everyone in the building knows you're passing. You've got to go make a play and kind of put a game on your shoulders. We haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen him play well in a tight game because Ole Miss hasn't been in a tight game. And so while yes, I think we all probably knew Dart was the starter, there probably still was some legitimacy to Kiffin kind of holding out um, on saying that, naming it all the way up until the very last moment where you felt like you had to, because there is a world, I don't think it happens, but there is a world where Dart really struggles against Kentucky. And then maybe it doesn't look great against Vanderbilt and Auburn. And all of a sudden, you know, that's 12 more quarters of a sample size. That's not a short leash. You might have to think, Oh, we might've gotten this wrong. Hell Kiffin has pointed that out multiple times. He said, we get this stuff wrong all the time. I don't foresee that happening, but do you think there's some legitimacy to that to, it's similar to the theme around the whole team. You just don't really know. You think a lot of things. I think he's yeah. pretty good. He's shown flashes. Do you think there was legitimacy to that as well? Because the part you mentioned about not transferring, like Dart could, you know, tweak an ankle and miss three, four games and him have to come sure. in. It doesn't work out. We still don't know that yet. Do you think there's like legitimacy to that piece of it? Yeah, I do. I think uh, Buchanan made like a really good point about that, that they, you know, they had not been tested. So it's really hard to just assume that, you know, he has met all the criteria that Lane has thought necessary to make him the starter. Uh, my counter argument for Sega the pod would be all of that can be true and all of that can be done even if you name a starter. Right. You know, even if you say, you know, Jackson's a starter, uh, if he gets hurt, well, guess what? Luke's coming in. If he doesn't play well for two or three games or even like a full half in a game they feel like they should be winning, Luke can still come in. I think it's uh, how he went about it, you know, I don't think there's it was a, an incorrect decision. Uh, I just I just don't know really know why he did it. I've really sh- struggled to figure that out. Uh, but I, I think all of that can be true with him just naming Dark Star. But guess what? We really don't have to have this conversation anymore right. because it sounds like it's over. And you know it's been over, but now it is you know quote unquote officially over. Uh, you hit on it a second ago, but I thought he played pretty well for the most part. And again, I wasn't in a place to watch this game, particularly, you know, that's been one thing that's made it easier to, you know, quote unquote, lock in through the first three games is because they've had this quarterback uncertainty. And so it's like, you know, second half against Central Arkansas, I still wanted to watch a lot of it, particularly a second time, because 
you had Dart come back in or vice versa against Troy. Whereas now you don't necessarily have that, but I, that being true and me being kind of in the place I was yesterday at a golf tournament, just dropping birdies left and right on folks. Um, a baby. <laughs> not, oh, not the old Tom out Cam out there. <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, I haven't been able to kind of watch it closely and I'll probably try to do this on Monday as well. I thought he was more decisive from what I saw. I thought he looked more comfortable in the offense and more deliberate in one, knowing what he wanted to do and making better decisions. Now, look, he missed a couple of throws. There were probably some misreads in there, but just yeah, the deliberate true. nature of how he went about it, he looked different to me than he had the first couple of weeks. He looked more comfortable. Yes, I, I thought he was the least of their issues on Saturday. Um, I mean, he handed the ball off when he should have. I thought he ran really well. He obviously needs to start getting down. I mean, yep. it, it's he looked – exhausted in the third quarter whether that was the heat or you know just you know sheer exhaustion or just being tired because his body is taking such a beating it could be a combination of all three or none of it he's just out of shape I don't know but you it was just so clear that halfway through that third quarter he was not the same player he was starting off that game you know obviously that's just natural a football game but him specifically it looked even more so um but yeah, he, I thought he played fine. I thought he was confident. I thought he was even confident on deep balls that he missed. I think Mingo actually screwed up that route, the way Jackson responded. Uh, one of those deep balls, uh, I thought he's really been really good with decision-making. He had an opportunity when he – I can't remember what part of the game it was, but he was kind of rolling to his right, you know, towards the sideline. It's an opportunity for him, just like he did in the Georgia yep. Tech game, to throw the ball and try to make a – you know, a crazy big play, and he just kind of scooted out of bounds. And I feel like, you know, that's, that maturity happens slowly but surely. Uh, so, yeah, I was fine with how he played. I thought he was I thought he was pretty good. The uh, On the in-shape part of it, that would be kind of funny if, like, Kiffin did get asked about it. It's like, yeah, well, he really loves fast food. We can't really know what that is. <laughs> no, I have not been able to contain it. <laughs> we haven't really been able to contain him to stay out of the drive-thru window. Yeah. No, I, uh, I don't think that is uh, – the case at all, but it is an interesting piece of it. I would like to focus on the running aspect of a second because Dart threw the uh, ran the football 13 times in this game. That comes a week after he ran it 10 times against Georgia Tech. This is something that we talked about, you know, leading up into the season that, um, you know, all the way back in January when I talked to his trainer, Taylor Kelly, I was, he was quick to correct me. and was like, no, no, running is a huge part of his game, whether it's designed or him making plays out of structure. You just didn't see that it much, much as much at USC because of the torn meniscus thing. And it's clear they want to use him in the run game. You know, after yep. Central Arkansas, the amount of, and really in the second half of that too, the amount of design runs, you've seen an uptick in it. And that's 23 carries in two weeks. You're exactly right. He's going to need to learn how to preserve his body better and get down because I'm just not sure how sustainable that is. Whereas like, you know, Corral, I guess, is the example of it from last year. But I mean, Corral was so beat up through the second half of the year. You don't want that, particularly with 19-year-old version Jackson Dart. I know breaking news there. But that is a fascinating aspect of it because that's going to be a difficult line to walk. How often do you run him? How often does he run outside of structure? And how much of that affected is just his sheer, I won't say refusal to slide, but his propensity to just want to put someone in the dirt as opposed to stick a knee in the ground and get down and slide. I have to feel at this point, Kiffin has told him, that's enough. Um, I think they're running him because they need to run him because he's he's good at it. He's a he's a solid north south runner. You know he's not making really anybody miss out there. Um, kind of like Matt used to, but he he's been very very effective as a runner, more effective than I thought he has been. 
but like you said, you know, those, those hits, they pile up and they pile up in little bitty nicks or, you know, it could always result in something a lot worse, especially when you're putting down your right shoulder, you know, going into some of these guys. And, uh, you know, Tulsa was pretty physical too. I mean, he was taking some real licks. Um, so I, it's part of the offense. It's, it's clearly part of what they're going to do. He's going to make off script plays and run, you know, he's going to be part of that quarterback counter quarterback power run game. Uh, I think that's fine. I, I think he has got to learn to be smarter about getting down smarter about figuring out how to take less hits. Even if you're just going to get straight up tackled. Um, yeah. It's third one and you need the yard, get the yard. But if it's, you know, second and 10 and you're running, you're about going through the first down, you just don't need to lower your shoulder and, I have to imagine Lane's told him that at this point. And then passing wise, you 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 hit on a second ago. I thought that was a good example when he had the rollout and it looked like that was a prime opportunity to, is he going to make this mistake? Is he going to do what he did against Georgia Tech to where everyone in the stands goes, no, 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 no. Then it happens. You didn't have that. I mean, the interception, I don't think it was just a completely terrible decision, right? You didn't, it seemed like he, he was minimizing on the, head scratching decisions, whether that resulted in an interception or a drop pick or just throwing it into triple coverage and just surviving another play because they didn't pick it off. That seemed to be cut down on it. And I think that was part of what I was alluding to with the decisiveness part of it. Um, I thought that was better. And then, you know, receivers, I thought were okay. There were times where they really had, I thought some advantages on the outside with Mingo and Heath. Now they didn't, you know, put that together for four quarters, but you know, both of them showing flashes and playing well, I think is also a sign of Dart getting more comfortable with them and building chemistry with them as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I thought he was pretty confident in his decision-making. Uh, I mean, he hit Heath on a great throw, hit Mingo on a great one down the, down the side, you know, he, he's finding those kind of five yard hitches, you know, the semi RPO plays uh, he's been good. I, I think his, Pocket presence is one thing that needs to improve a little bit. Uh, the pass blocking, I will say, has been subpar. I mean, at least it was subpar in the Tulsa game for sure. And I, I feel like he has the ability to sometimes step up. Um, and he, he kind of does the Kyler Murray uh, kind of just, you know, backpedal into the rush, whereas he just steps up and maybe runs forward. Uh, but, I mean, overall – like we said, it's been pretty vanilla on a lot of the, the passing concepts. Um, but, yeah, I think he's been fine. He really has been fine. I mean, there's, It's not great, but it has not been bad. I mean, he's been kind of what we thought he's been. And, you know, the second half wasn't what you wanted, but that was kind of an entire offense less than just him. The pass blocking piece of it has been kind of a mystery, and it's clouded, you know, evaluating both of these guys and obviously now it's really just dart in the picture but it's made it a little bit more difficult because i think yes the passing game was not great against tulsa but i didn't think it was great in parts of the other two games either and you know with young quarterbacks when as you mentioned he kind of needs to work on his pocket presence that doesn't help them whereas i think going into the year you know particularly sitting in the kentucky game i figured that would be a huge advantage to dart and you know altmeyer too or whoever's in there that they're going to have a pretty good offensive line that's going to afford them time to throw and make life easier on them. That hasn't really been the case. I, you know, I'll defer to you because you would know better than me. As well as it's gone running the football, what is the discrepancy between run blocking and pass blocking weird, a product of the competition they played? Like, is that normal? What do you think has gone into that? Because it's undoubtedly true that the pass blocking has had some issues through a couple weeks. 
Yeah, it's difficult to say. I haven't really been able to dive into like the all 22 because I don't really have access to that. Uh, maybe I can find it and then give a better answer than this. Um, the only thing I've noticed, run blocking has been really good. They've been doing a lot of outside zones and, you know, Jeremy James and, and Jaden Williams, to their credit, are pretty athletic guys. They've been able to get out there um, and kind of seal their guy. And, you know, you have two really good running backs with just phenomenal vision. And when you have guys like that, that's when you run outside zone concepts, when you've got guys, you know, NFL wise, you know, the Vikings run a ton of outside zone because Dalvin cook is just incredible at cutting back. Alvin Kamara is another running back, you know, McCaffrey, you see these teams. I mean, I'm watching the 49ers right now. I mean, there's not a better run game than Kyle Shanahan's and they throw in, you know, a bunch of no-name no running backs, and they, they really make it happen. So they've been doing a lot of that, a lot of counter, and they've been pretty effective at that. Um, I will say the interior of the offensive line is what's really concerning me right now. Uh, I think brokers had a pretty difficult time transitioning to guard, and I, I don't want to say I foresaw it, but he, he doesn't have a lot of ass to him. He's a really good athlete, but he's dealing with some big boys on the inside, and you know, to Tulsa's credit, they, they had some defense interior defensive linemen that caused some real issues. Um, and that those issues have come up in run blocking and pass blocking, you know, and uh, it, it's hard to say why they're doing better at running. I think it's because, you know, a little bit of the scheme and a little bit of the backs being as good as they have been uh, pass blocking. They, they just been really getting beat through the middle, whether it's just missing an assignment. I think they've struggled with pressure. Um, you know, kind of laying people off and passing people off. And they've been end up just leaving the defensive tackle, you know, going through the middle. Uh, and then, yeah, a small portion of it uh, has been the tight ends kind of, you know, being so-so in their blocking assignments, you know, Kelly and Trigg. Uh, I'm not ready to, uh, you know, fire up the alarms on it. I, I think that, you know, offensive lines need time to gel. And this group has kind of been a new-ish group with Williams coming in. More so than um, it was think, designed to be, too. Like Correct. Know. No, absolutely. And then, you know, whatever happened with Caleb Warren, uh, they said he was kind of playing hurt. So you're going to have to put Eli in there. And then, you know, Mason Brooks comes in, and that switches up that line again. So they've been having struggle gelling. And uh, they're going to have to figure out the centerpiece, another part of that, because those snaps were just awful. And I'm not even talking about the ones – over the head and low. I'm talking just the straight up snaps. I mean, it was taking, you know, three seconds to get back to dart. And when you're running a fast tempo offense and having to make reads, you know, it's almost impossible for dart to be confident in what he's doing. If the ball is taking so long to get to, I mean, he can barely put it in the, in the belly of the running back before the defensive ends already at him. So they're going to fix that big time because Kentucky's defensive line is, is for real and they will eat them alive. If that continues to be the case. The interior part is a part of it as it pertains to pass blocking is interesting because you're right. I mean, look, the reason that, you know, they're kind of look different than maybe we thought they would on paper at tackle is because of how good Jade Williams has been. Jaden Williams has been, and Jeremy James has been pretty good too. It really has been at least seemingly on the interior more so than on the outside. What do you think that is? Because, you know, there were pieces of the Georgia tech game where I can't remember if it was Lugan bill or the got dusty, whatever his name is up there in the booth was just, I mean, ready to just absolutely give Broker a fat, wet kiss, just absolutely raving over him on run blocking stuff. So, yeah, again, for, offensive line play is such a for, like the intricacies of it is such a foreign concept to me. I'm not going to like pretend to tell you why that is the case, but do you, for someone who is perceived to have been pretty good pulling in a run blocking, 
he has struggled pass blocking some on the interior, which is weird when you consider the fact that he was an SEC left tackle for three years. What do you think just your best guess goes into that? Like how different is it pass blocking on the inside versus the outside? Is there anything to the fact that outside you got Miles Garrett or whoever on the outside and you know that's who that guy's coming where a lot of the stunting and the switching oftentimes happens more on the interior. That was just at least a theory I threw out there. What say you? So it, it really is kind of a completely different position and a completely different player that's, you know, playing guard and playing tackle when it comes to pass blocking, you know, tackle, you've got a, a more athletic, leaner, at least in modern football these days, a more athletic, leaner, quick footed, quick twitched athlete to deal with the speed guys off the edge. And especially in the SEC, I mean, you've got so many of those guys and they're about to see a few of them. Uh, interior, it's a lot more about anchoring and, you know, and being, you know, thicker and kind of keeping the middle in the middle and broker. And I don't want to sound like I'm dogging on him because obviously Broker's a very good player. There's a reason he's playing where he's at and where he has been, uh, but he's a better athlete than he is a bigger guy. So when he's pulling or he's run blocking, he, he's, he's athletic enough to, to hinge and kind of get in his guy's way and, you know, be really quick off the line and, when he's pulling, he's out great out in space. But when it's just one-on-one versus some of these bigger interior linemen, he doesn't have the best ability to anchor and just stay in front of them and, you know, kind of, you know, that push-pull between defensive and offensive linemen. He's just getting kind of bullied a little bit. And I've kind of noticed it after the past few games. Um, so, I mean, that's it's, it's difficult. And it's just kind of the product of having a guy – they thought was going to play left tackle who is now not playing left tackle, but they've got another guy out there who is more suited to play that position than, than broker would be in this offensive line. You know, maybe they kind of look at it and flip it around a little bit. Um, especially if Acker ends up being the center, because now you've got, you know, Acker who was brought in to play tackle, who's already playing guard now playing center. I mean, that's it's a first unique position for him. Too. First year starter there. Right. Well. Um, so I, I, I like I said, I'm not firing, you know, off all the fire alarms and saying this is going to be a massive issue for the whole season. But I do think that it is, you know, been a small issue so far. And I think, you know, I like the offensive line coach. He's a young guy. He's smart. I, I believe in the ability to scheme around it. You can you can, you can survive with below average guard play. Um, that's kind of a, you know, a recruiting and just a philosophy that we've always had, you know, you need really good tackles. You can survive without guards. Um, and I don't think they don't have guards, but they just haven't been playing well so far, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. I mean, it begs the question. I think everyone was wondering, should we have bought more Orlando Umana stock? He didn't have his, <laughs> you know, for all the issues that he had, the, the ball got to the quarterback most of the time. And I, I'd say that mostly tongue in cheek, but I mean, of it course. is an issue you don't think about, but it is a big issue when it becomes one, you have to get the ball back in a timely and efficient manner to the quarterback, particularly in an offense like this. And when you bring a new guy in, that's something that's never as certain as maybe everyone wants to think it is. And you've seen that on full display. This was on display in the scrimmages. You heard this throughout the scrimmages too. Right. That has been an issue. Happened. You know, I guess it's not overly surprising, but I don't know. It needs to get fixed. I don't know how you do that from that perspective. It'll be interesting to see if they shuffle it around a little bit. What has not been affected by it is the running game because they have just been awesome in pretty much every aspect and that yeah. Evans goes out with quote unquote a medical thing in the second half. I, I don't know what to make of that, if anything at all. 
Um, could have been precautionary because he did play in the first half. Could have happened in the game. I don't really know. He had to, he had a few rushes in the second half too. By yeah, it was just one scary. series he right. was back in. So I mean, it looked like he definitely looked a little weird, but I don't know what happened. That's uh, that's going to be you know an important thing to monitor because they're going to need to be at full strength you know next week. Um, because they were already without Bentley this week. I don't know what the deal is with that there. I don't know if he will be back next week but you know you get down and you kind of saw what it looked like when you only had Judkins back there that wasn't really the point I was trying to bring up I just would like to reiterate for week after week it is remarkable how good both of those guys look through the first four games um and the oil that Kiffin struck and Weiss struck and whatever you have whoever else you want to credit on this staff struck with of course landing Zach Evans I think you knew absolutely what you're getting with him but what Quinshawn Judkins is as an 18 year old freshman is a remarkable evaluation, I think, because it's it's are they're the best two running backs in the country, and it's not really close, is it? I mean, I guess Gibbs and whoever the hell is behind him, because Gibbs is remarkable. Um, like I said earlier, he's like the Pokemon evolution of Quinshawn Judkins. Uh, <laughs> but you know, for what this team needed, and you know how good they've been, it's hard to disagree with what you said. Uh, I mean, they've been phenomenal. I mean. Judkins, his only knock is his speed. I mean, he is not a burner, and it is it is clear. But my God, he is an A plus in everything else. His vision is unbelievable. It truly is. I, I'm you, when you're just watching on TV, you know, it's a lot easier to see. But he is just, you know, he sees it before it comes. He's making holes by himself. I know Evans <laughs> said that to you one time. You know, the running back can make his own yeah. hole, but those two guys truly do do that really, really well. Um, and to kind of throw some cold water on it, I don't know what this Bentley situation is, but only having two scholarship running backs is kind of an issue uh, because, you know, Woolard is not a guy you're going to see getting any any snaps. He's special team only at this point. And then it seems like Bullock is on the, you know, potential Luke Allmeyer redshirt train. Uh, he might have to play. He might have to get over that and play. Uh, he has four games to burn because if Bentley's out for an extended period of time, I mean, these two guys, the way they run, I mean, only having two backs with the speed of this offense is, is pretty difficult. That being said, they're two pretty damn good running backs. They are very, very good. And, yes, it does seem like Kentrell Bullock is kind of on that red shirt train. I had someone ask me uh, after the Georgia Tech game if he traveled because they didn't know – I guess there was someone who was at the game. They didn't notice him even being on the sideline. And, clearly, the way they phrased the question, they were looking for it. I don't know if that's the case, but it does appear that way. And you're right, uh, you know, I wrote a story on Isaiah Woolard when I was a I think I remember I was, reading it. I think I was a senior. When I was a senior in college. You're a year younger than me. We've been out of college for a minute. This is I know. No, but I I remember the story you wrote. Was it about the tornado or whatever? Yeah, but that was just, I just meant that yeah. from the standpoint of this is like sixth and a half year senior Isaiah Woolard. It's crazy. That was a guy. I remember when Scotty Phillips got hurt, he got, got real run the last four games of the season there. No uh, shit, he did. He played like against A and M. He played. Uh, he played in the first game against Texas Tech. Like, he was playing on those teams a lot like, and a playing lot. pretty well. Like, he had a night at Vandy that was pretty good. Now that I think goes to show you the uh, you know the amount of talent they've yeah. had. Some other issues there. Uh, since but that is something interesting to monitor because this has been the undoubted strength of this team um through the first couple of games and now you know what happens if you can't you can't go into battle with one or two of those guys uh suddenly your football team starts to look pretty different and so I think that's something to monitor another thing I wanted to get to too was the tight ends um you mentioned some of the struggles there from a blocking standpoint um through four games you know Trigg hasn't become kind of a 
staple focal point of the offense like you thought he might be as much as Kiffin loves the tight end in the system. Look, he's a yep. younger player, right? 19 years old. It's going to take some time still swimming, but I don't want to say like simplified as, as good as ad, hasn't been as good as advertised so far, but I thought we would have seen more from him to this point, more involvement in the offense. And I don't think that's a Kiffin and Weiss just not getting him the football thing. Um, I think there are reasons for that. And that part of it's been interesting. I wonder if how much that changes because, you know, when you have a passing offense with pretty much all new at receiver everywhere, minus Mingo and a young quarterback, that to me, I thought could be a game changer for this team. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but I do think that's something fascinating to monitor as we go forward because, you know, they're about to hit the first real SEC game and you haven't had the Michael Trigg half. You haven't had the Michael Trigg game or Michael Trigg quarter yet. You know what I mean? I think he did catch two touchdowns or maybe three. Yeah, he's been scoring, but he hasn't yeah. necessarily been effective. Exactly. That, those are two well, different things. Consistently on drives, what do you think the reason for that is if you notice kind of the same thing? Uh, it's tough to say. I mean, it could be just a lack of his knowledge of the offense at this point. I mean, that seemed pretty clear throughout camp that he was kind of swimming a little bit, but the talent was never in question. And I, I don't think that talent has been questioned at all uh, anytime recently. But uh, yeah, him and Casey Kelly, who, you know, Casey's a pretty productive and solid tight end when you need him to be, really have not been a part of this offense at all. And, you know, perhaps that is kind of the part of the vanilla offense we've seen is they just haven't really utilized them yet because they haven't necessarily needed to. Um, but I, I think you'll see more of them. I think the more they're in the offense and more comfortable, you know, with it, especially, I guess, on Triggs part, Kelly's been here for a while. Uh, I think you'll see more of him. I mean, he's such a matchup nightmare. And once they get him schemed up and I, I'm fully confident they will, I, I think these next few weeks, you're going to see a lot more Trigg. And if you don't, that probably says a little bit more about Trigg than it does like the scheme. That, that means he's maybe not ready or he's just not making plays. I mean, it could be one or the other, uh, but I don't anticipate that being the case. We'll get back to Walden Rodenberg in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you that the podcast is brought to you by our good friends at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy service that can match you with a licensed counselor in under 48 hours. We put gas in our cars. We change the tires. We get the oil change. We do regular maintenance on our vehicles. It's so, no different with our own brain. How your brain performs affects the way you live. Therapy is just that. It's health, it makes your brain more healthy. You need to check them out, particularly if you're feeling anxious, anxiety. Sometimes it's easy to just talk to someone and get some things off your chest. You don't even have to do it on camera if you don't want to. You can go off camera, whatever you, that you prefer. It's very laid back. Check it out if you're so inclined. Betterhelp.com. Use the promo code MPW, and that'll get you 10% off any purchase. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go check them out. If you're a Rippy Ride subscriber, that's rippyrides.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me a couple of times a week, plus discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go show Greg proof of subscription or whoever in there in LB's, and they'll get you hooked up. And then go find all your own favorites. Oxford's so lucky to have a place like LB's. All kinds of delicious cuts, fresh sausages, seafood, I like the tri-tip. The filet burgers are always awesome if you're trying to grow out with a few other people. All kinds of delicious stuff there at LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Walden Rodenberg. One of the things that stuck out to me that I, I mentioned on the post-game show last night that I probably – I wouldn't do a 180, but kind of reconsider a little bit was talking about the lack of total catches and kind of possession guys from receiver that they hadn't gotten through the first four games. I thought it looked better the second time I watched it this – this morning, particularly with Mingo and Heath. 
But do you make anything of the fact that they haven't had a receiver catch more than four balls in a game yet? I get it. They, they, we preface it with everything we've had to preface it with, right? Competition, them running all over every opponent so far. But do you put any stock into the fact that they haven't had a guy go catch five, six balls in a game? It's been, you know, four, and I think Heath has done it twice. One other guy did it in the uh, – I think Mingo did it in the Troy game. I could have that wrong. But there hasn't been a you know huge discrepancy in a guy, you know, kind of make an impact on a drive-by-drive basis um, at receiver yet. Yeah, I don't put too much into it. Uh, I think we kind of, you know, every year Kiffin has his guy, whether it's been, you know, Elijah Moore last year, you know, it was kind of a little, little more drumming, I guess you could say, uh, with some other, you know, guys mixing between. I, th- I think this year his guy is the running game. And that that's the one he's going to kind of lay on and the one he's going to be confident with. And the receivers are kind of, you know, just the second tier part of this offense so far, of course. You know, they haven't really needed to air it out. Um, they, they've been so confident in what they're doing on the ground that that probably is just going to, you know, lack in a lot of receptions for the receivers. And, you know, they've been kind of spreading it around a little bit. You know, Watkins has gotten in there and Mingo and Heath have been kind of the main, the main targets you've seen so far. Uh, I don't, I don't put too much stock into it. I think that's just kind of what we've gotten so far with this offense and how, how bland it kind of has been, at least in my opinion, for all we know, they're throwing all their stuff out there. I, I don't think they are, uh, but no, I don't think it's too the thing is too big of a deal yeah no first i i tend to agree with that side of it as well and to 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 kind of push back on the other side of it it has been better i mean look remember at times last year i mean we had multiple points in the season and granted this was a little deeper in the season which made it more concerning where kiffin was talking about guys not getting lined up knowing where to go and like doing the correct things on route you haven't had that right it's kind of fallen no 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 thought it was it's more competent guys you just haven't had someone emerge yet and i think that could be mingo there's Again, I think his, I wouldn't say lack of production, but lack of like targets and kind of taking over and having that, you know, Mingo game. The first one he ever had was Kentucky in 2020. We're like, all right, this is the guy. I think more of that's competition than anything else because he's shown flashes at this point to kind of stepping up to a, I don't know, a true one, but for this team, definitely a a decent one version. Um, I've been pretty impressed with him. And I guess health has been kind of the main thing. It's like he put the pieces together in parts of 20 and 2021 but health kind of derailed him last year. I think a healthy version of him could end up being the guy that has a breakout season. Yeah, I, I think he is a very solid, serviceable number one wide receiver in this offense. Um, I, I think he's healthy. I think he's playing fast. I mean, he put that Tulsa DB in a, a complete spin cycle and basically walked into the end zone. I mean, that was – there's not a lot of guys that just do that and make it look that easy. Um, he's been really good. I, I think Heath has been exactly what you thought he would be. He's a – strong physical receiver who can catch jump balls. He's a, he's actually been really good at blocking. He seems pretty bought in on what they've asked him to do. Um, but yeah, they're definitely lacking. I mean, the whole Jalen Robinson, you know, conundrum has, has been lacking that kind of, you know, break the top off the defense athlete, and it, you know, from whoever you talk to, that's either been a doghouse or a, a hamstring. I don't know which one it is. No, I, I'm willing to believe either, but um I think we'll see more out of these guys if Robinson plays. I think you'll see a little more jet sweep, a little more, you know, motion. You know, they've been pretty stagnant on offense so far. Not like from the actual production, but, you know, not a lot of misdirection or anything so far. But uh, I've liked what I've seen from the receivers. I think they've been kind of what you thought they would be, you know, an average to above average with Mingo being the guy. To put a bow on the offensive piece of it before I want to hit some defensive things and we'll bounce around and get uh, some SEC stuff and get out of here. 
Chase asked me this question last night, and I thought it was an interesting way to think about it. Um, what's next? What is the next step for Jackson Dart? What like to confirm whatever you might think about him? How would you describe what you think is the next quote unquote level next thing you want to see? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I guess it would just be continuing to. Uh, to gather himself with this offense and continue to figure out, you know, how to play faster because I feel like they're not where they want to be tempo wise yet. Um, I think he needs to do a better job of communicating. I, I feel like we've had a lot of very weird snaps, very weird offensive line penalties. And, you know, a lot of that's just kind of on the quarterback. I feel like he needs to be a little more vocal, get his guys where they need to be set up and go. I, I think just play speed would be, what I would like to see more of from him. Because if you can get that play speed down, the tempo, the way that Lane wants to run it, that just adds a completely different element to your offense. And, you know, so far they really haven't had to go warp speed. I feel like they've been fantastic on the opening drives, you know, the one that's scripted. And then once they get off the script and they're kind of having to get into rhythm, they have struggled a little bit to kind of, except for the second quarter of this game, which is so weird, really get a few drives in a row where they get that first play and they kind of start rolling. You know, the offense you used to see with Hugh Freeze, with Chad Kelly, I mean, they would just get on offensive drives and just start rolling. And with Matt early last year against Louisville, it was just like unstoppable. You know, they would get that first five-yard run and then it was off the races. I feel like that's where Dart needs to get to get this offense to where it needs to be. One, great answer, but two, that is the weird part is that that's a part of the reason why I lean not putting stock and a ton of stock into this game in general was the fact that you mentioned in that second quarter, they had those multiple drives in a row where they really kind of finally got it rolling. To your point, elongating that beyond, um, you know, going on script um, would be, I think that's a good, like, good answer. I think that's a definitely like part of the next step as well. And it's, it's also worth mentioning too. And this was a little later in the year last year, but the Ole Miss offense last year had that issue at times, right? I mean, early in the year, absolutely. Absolutely. Middle part of the absolutely year, did. it was script. And then it was like, Oh man, these guys are struggling to move the football. Some of that's just a natural part of you know playing good defense and playing in the Southeastern conference. But I think that's a good piece of it. The way I answered it, I'm just curious to get your thoughts. It's not like a comparison. Can they go rely? How much, how much of a game are they willing to put on his shoulders to go win? Because there is going to come a point over the next three weeks where, okay, maybe not Vanderbilt withstanding, but even Auburn defensively, they're going to have points where they're not running it very well. And they're going to need to kind of have that drive where he completes five, six passes for 50, 60 something yards to get them down and get them points. Like, can he do that? And then I guess to kind of compile that into a more tangible thing, can he go win them a game? It's one thing to go ask him, be like, look, can he go do this on this stage in Bryant-Denny Stadium? Can he go win them the Kentucky game next week if asked to is kind of something I'm interested to see. And do they trust him to do it? I lean that the answer is yes, but I'm curious to see it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the deal is you have to see it. They haven't had to do that yet. I mean, even in this game, you know, it was close, but it wasn't – he didn't have to put the game on his shoulders. Um, and I think there's a point where – you know, you might have to see that. It could be next week. It could be against Auburn. It could be against LSU. Um, I, I, I'm very interested to see kind of later in the year when they're on the road, how does he react? Because, I mean, Georgia Tech was a shit atmosphere. Um, he's going to have a, a good, hopefully a good home crowd this weekend. But, uh, you know, later in the year on the road, is he going to be too fired up? Is he going to be too competitive? Will he be able to settle the offense down and himself down? 
and run what they need to run. I think that will be very interesting to see. But I think the biggest test will be this week. And, you know, whether he can do that or not, you know, maybe they won't even have to. Uh, you know, we haven't seen it yet. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with your answer at all or your thought process at all. Um, it, it's just kind of one of those things where we haven't even had to judge him on it yet. And to his credit, like yesterday's not a great example of what we're talking about because, the you know, as close as it was at the end, you never felt like the game was in the balance. There were points where he and Judkins kind of carried them. Like nothing else was really going correctly. The defense wasn't playing well. And he and Judkins really – you talk about that piece of it in the second quarter. Like they were really, really good on those drives. And I don't know if that's necessarily qualifies as like carrying the offense, but like they were playing well despite things not around them not going as smoothly. And I thought, you know, that was a impressive, I guess, sign of it or a little pe- teaser part piece of it and so I don't know again we keep beating the Ted horse here but we're going to learn a lot about this team next week let's wait for the defensive stuff before we get to the crowd size do you make a ton of the defensive performance you hit it on at the top it's a hard team to prepare for it's hot as hell you have a quarterback change then they just have a a a stallion horse type guy just coming at you that's 245 pounds I'm sure they knew it was coming but me watching on tv not really putting a ton of like prep work into Tulsa because of you know who the opponent is I was like where the hell did this kid come from why is he not somewhere else type thing do you put a ton of stock into it because them being a bad tackling defense is just not part of what the DNA has been largely ever since Kiffin and this regime has gotten here they've been you know and even before when the talent wasn't quite there yet they populated the football better and you could tell it was just more competently coached team so do you put a ton of stock into what happened yesterday? I think there's some things about the running game in general, but them tack- not tackling well, I would write up as a one-off until proven otherwise. I'm willing to listen to that. Um, okay. I, I, I don't necessarily know if I agree with it, but I'm willing to believe that there was definitely some kind of lethargic, you know, look, look ahead attitude towards playing this team. Um, I will say that, you know, it's, I, it's kind of hard to remember while you're watching, but that Kari Coleman and JJ Pegues did not play. And, you know, to be quite honest, those two have been two of the more impressive defensive players they've had this year. Um, the tackling was really bad though. Like it, it's like, it's hard to get past how bad it was. It, 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 to me, it was a little bit concerning. Um, they didn't wrap up well. They tackled just really poorly in open field, which has been kind of their, their, their bread and butter through the past, the first four games. Um, the pass rush was, was really concerning. Uh, I and mean, they got locked up on, on the outside, on the inside, they really struggled to get to the quarter uh, to Bryn in the beginning. And then they struggled to wrap up uh, Myers or Braxton, Braxton, whatever his name was uh, towards the end. And, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult transition going to two quarterbacks with completely different skill sets. I'm willing to give them a small reprieve for that. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, it was pretty – it was a pretty abysmal performance tackling. You know, even the, even the DBs just, you know, guarding the receivers was not great either. It just wasn't great overall. Uh, but I am – I'm, I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of against you. I don't really know how I feel about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, they're going to play a lot better next week. So it really doesn't matter at this point. Yeah, you're exactly right about that piece of it. And for the record, just to drop a little news part of it there, Kiffin did say after the game that he thinks that Kugis and uh, Coleman will play next week. Um, and he – I don't remember off the top of my head because I didn't write this quote down, but I don't think he – he may not have exactly said it this way, but it was implied like if Kentucky game were this past week, they probably would have suited up and they didn't because it sure. was the type of thing. So that is certainly an encouraging sign. They will go into that pretty much mostly fully healthy – 
Um, they will miss Otis Reese for a half, won't they? Don't, wasn't that targeting penalty in the second half, if I'm not mistaken? That they- it was in the second half. So they'll be missing him for a half. You know, unfortunately, they've recruited and developed. I mean, they've got a lot of defensive backs. So, yeah, I mean, that, that stings a little bit. He's been a pretty good player. He's really been good off the line of scrimmage, blitzing and kind of making plays in the backfield. Um, leaves a little bit to be desired in pass coverage. But, yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a loss. It's a real loss, at least in the first half of next week. And so outside of that, I just don't know what to make of it. You're right. I just, I don't know. Like it, I won't give them a pass for the tackling piece of it. I just, if, if I don't know if it's necessarily a sign of things to come because I do think there's even just a base level piece of it is they're going to be fired the hell up for the first quarter and a half of that game next week and flying around just because of the sheer stakes of it is versus, yeah. you know, that's another hard part about it. I guess that's where we can wrap up here is like, don't you think it's hard to play four games in a row where you haven't truly been tested? where you're not in a yeah, – I, th- I think it is. Like, I, I, think, I think it really is, yes. Getting to your 15th and 16th quarter of football where you're just out there, not going through the motions, but just doing it for the sake of doing it instead of like we have to get a stop here. I just imagine as a football player that would be pretty difficult to continue to do, particularly knowing what you have come down the pipe. Um, I don't think we missed anything else from this game, Waz. I don't think there's any earth-shattering news. Um, I know you wanted to get to this too. I had it written down as well. The uh, – Crowds were all the rage this weekend, or a lack thereof, um, was a big topic of conversation. Kiffin got asked a very bizarrely worded question about it after the game. Not really sure what was up with that. That one, sure. I, it wasn't a great crowd. I, I I would have been more stunned. Again, I was out of town this weekend, but I've been more stunned if someone had texted me and said, man, this place is packed. I just, I assumed that that was going to be the case. It was a really hot day. It was three o'clock against Tulsa, um, you know, before you go play your biggest game of the year. I don't get the crowd shaming part of it. It's, it's hard as hell to get to these games. It's ex- I say hard as hell to get to it. For out-of-town people, it's expensive, and it can be difficult to find a place to stay. Oxford is not like other places. And don't get me wrong, it's hard to find a place in Tuscaloosa or, or most of these smaller college towns in general. But Oxford, I would say, is especially so. And it's, it, it's expensive, and particularly if you have kids, which I don't that I know of, but I imagine it would be more difficult to Same. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be more difficult to, you know, get the kids in the car and go do that. I just I'm not big into the crowd shaming. I think this is, again, a product of playing three home games that weren't really big, hyped up games. But I, I just think this is a very silly topic. Um, I do think there's some aspect of it. Look, you're always going to have this fan base out there. The Nebraska fans are psychotic. All the straight sellouts or whatever to watch that version of football the last yeah. decade almost question their sanity. But, hey, whatever, I do what you like. But I, I just said this day and age of college football, this was already trending this way, and then you had COVID, and people realized they had other options, and it's really nice to watch it on television. This was a pre-pandemic thing that was exacerbated by the pandemic. And I'm just not into telling people to go show up and do something they don't want to do and be somewhere they don't want to be. I just think that's a bizarre way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't agree with more with, with a lot of what you're saying. I do think that Ole Miss specifically is in a very difficult position in this kind of new age of football where, where the crowds are declining and they're declining everywhere. And you, you mentioned that I've been trying to think of what the word is and I kind of have a small rant on it. I think Ole Miss has kind of a fan base infrastructure problem. Um, uh, first of all, you know, the students are not showing up. There's really no excuse for that. They should be going to more games. There's nothing you can do about that. You can say you want to move it to the other side. I mean, I think 
everything points to you know, students went to more games on the other side. I know my first two years were spent on the other end zone, second two on the second end zone, and no one went to that. games. Yeah, I mean, now that's 14 and 15 versus 16 and 17. So those are two really good teams, two really bad teams. There's part of that as well. Um, but we went to every game in 14 and 15, and the student section was completely full for every home game, no matter who it was. And that was not the case the second two years. So that's that part is kind of – they're going to show up for the big games, and it's pretty clear at Old Miss they're not going to show up for the games that are not SEC games. That's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fact that you have a 60,000-capacity you know, stadium with the smallest SEC college town at, like, around 22,000 people total. So if you assume that, you know, 15, 10 to 15,000 of your actual population go to the games, that is like one fourth of your stadium. Then not to mention that you have a school in Ole Miss that is, what do you think, 65% in state? I don't, what do you think the split is? It's getting closer to 50-50, honestly. Um, Is it closer to 50-50? 45 or whatever you want to call it. But I I would say it's definitely less than 65% in-state at this point. Right. So then, you know, if that's your case, I mean, that's your alumni base. So that means, you know, 55, 60% of your alumni is in state, but the almost half is out of state. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen the Mississippi economy, no one's staying in state. No one, you know, no one's really moving to Jackson unless you're from Mississippi or Oxford, unless you're from Oxford or vice versa. If you're from either one of those places, I mean, you're, you're an example, but guess where you were before you moved back, you were in Dallas. Right. It is insanely it for, I think the biggest issue is the, the early graduates, the, the guys, guys and girls, of course, age 22 to, to 32, you know, they're moving to bigger cities outside the state. It's hard to go to the games. It is not financially feasible for me living in Houston. I will not be going to a game this year, you know, and you can call me a shit fan. That, that's fine. I, I went there for LSU, four years. That one guy's brain, <laughs> I mean, I went there for four years, worked for the team for three years. I cannot make sense financially to go to a game this year. There is nowhere to stay. The flights are outrageous. It's just difficult to get to. So that's your biggest issue is your alumni now are not in Mississippi. They're in Atlanta, in Nashville, in Birmingham, Dallas, Austin, Houston. So some of those places are drivable, but then it's like, where are you going to stay? Well, guess what? Unless, you know, mommy and daddy bought you a condo there, there's nowhere to stay, legitimately nowhere to stay. So it's impossible for 50% of your fan base, that is hypothetically 50% of your fan base, that is outside of the hour, hour and a half circle around Oxford to be expected to come in. And this is kind of a unique Ole Miss issue. And Mississippi State as well, but then the difference with Mississippi State yeah, they're having attendance issues too, but their split is probably 80-20 in-state, out-of-state, maybe even more. So, you know, those, those people, they can drive from the Golden Triangle or Jackson or the coast of those games. They're going to get more people naturally just because of who went to Mississippi State, who's around Mississippi State. Ole Miss is just not the same case. So at this point, it's just a, it's just a weird – kind of economical, kind of, you know, kind of what's the word, demographics issue with Ole Miss, in my opinion. I mean, you look around the rest of the SEC, they're all having attendance issues, but when it comes to the big games, they're all going to be just fine. 
Baton Rouge can fill up Tiger Stadium by itself by sheer population. Tuscaloosa, Columbia, Auburn, even to another extent, you know, they're going to be able to fill it up. I mean, last year, Ole Miss against Arkansas and AM, good atmospheres. My understanding is those stadiums still were not full. Um, I mean, I don't know if you saw anything different. I was at the LSU game and it was close to full, but it still wasn't completely full. Um, so I, I don't know how to fix it. I feel like, you know, th- th- it's now kind of on the administration to, to figure something out, whether that's, you know, marketing and appealing to early graduates where it's financially very difficult to get to games, figuring out better transportation from Memphis or from Jackson or from wherever in the surrounding areas, fucking getting the airport fixed, extending the runway, and maybe during the fall, having a few Southwest flights or United flights yeah. from Atlanta or Houston or Dallas or New Orleans or wherever your alumni are. I mean, you kind of have to be creative with it because if you don't, nothing's going to change. And I don't necessarily think it's a fan enthusiasm problem. I think it's strictly a numbers problem. That's just kind of the situation Ole Miss is in. I could be overthinking this and completely wrong. I've been kind of thinking about it for two days since I watched the game and no one was there. Um, I've kind of always had this thought. Um, I, I think it's a, just a unique Ole Miss and, you know, to another extent, Mississippi State issue right now. Uh, maybe I'm like, I don't know, you could comment on it. Maybe I'm completely off base with this, but I really don't think I am. We No, no, you're not. I, I, I fall in the same uh, line of thinking as you do as well. And this, again, like I, I think what I was talking about and what you were talking about kind of work hand in hand. It's on top of what's already a larger issue across college sports and really just sports in general, right? I mean, just the whole watching at home versus right. going there. So, but what you're talking about is, is absolutely correct. And it's an interesting conversation because, you know, this has come up as, I don't remember if this was, if Chase and Neil did a podcast on this, but like the whole in-state, out-of-state thing and the way Mississippi State has recruited in-state kids versus Ole Miss, uh, Ole Miss has over the last couple of years and the, the, you know, the benefits and the cons of having such a heavy out-of-state population. Now, I think the alumni base to some degree it's heading in the direction we're talking about. That may be generally skewed. When I said close to 50-50, I was talking about current student population because sure. you know, 25 years ago, it was not necessarily this way. Um, but you're right. Like they are in a unique situation and Oxford's a little bit harder to get to. I mean, look, the airport piece, I imagine that's uh, beyond Keith Carter's pay grade. Not that you were insinuating old Miss. Sure. But like I mean, a hundred percent beyond his pay grade. But guess what? I mean, the university and the city, I mean, they're not necessarily combined, but my God, I'm sure they can have a conversation about it. And maybe I don't you understand know, yeah. the economic standpoint of that. And I definitely don't. Uh, it's just a thought because I mean, if there's really anyone to, to blame, I don't think there's really anybody, but it's your fan base in the hour and a half circle. It's your people from, you know, Tupelo and the surrounding hour area from Memphis and Jackson. I mean, those are the people that aren't coming in. Those are the drive in and out. You don't have to stay anywhere. And it's not like tickets are expensive. My God, when I, my dad dropped me off at college, he walked in the tickets office and bought season tickets. That's, that's, that's not part of the expense. That's the issue. It's, it's everything else. Um, and so, I mean, I, I'm not blaming anybody because, you know, personally, I don't care. I just want to win football games, but it's a big topic of conversation. And I've just been trying to kind of dissect what the issue is. I feel like it's becoming a demographics numbers issue more than a, more than just a, a COVID, you know, translation of life issue. Cause that this is kind of this way before COVID too, for being honest. Yeah, it was. And 
to your point about the lack of enthusiasm, it's not. I mean, look, I mean this dead seriously. Definitely our, not. Our podcast and the newsletter and all that and everything we got going at MPW Digital is a reflection of that. When they're good, people are jacked up and people are listening. Even just the excitement, you know, you get from you know having pe- interacting with different fans and stuff. Like it's it's not an enthusiasm issue. It's everything else you're talking yeah. about. And then kind of get specifically to the student section part of it because I feel like that's the one that makes the stadium look so bad. Uh, I say sure looks that's not to blame the students I've been actually firmly in the pro student section camp on this but it's a large just metal bleacher filled area that's getting more difficult to fill I sat in the old in the student section for the first three years of college being one year old in the U but I was working covering football full-time by the time they made the switch so I myself have never sat in that uh in that newer student section um but I mean it doesn't take a genius to see that it one it's super hot you know, it's kind of just like its own sauna, right? It's metal bleachers with no protections. They kind of put some yeah. tent. It's hot. For a yeah, bit. it's it's a bad, but it's hot everywhere. I mean, that's yeah. that's not a unique Ole Miss experience. But yes, you're right. It, it really is like on that side, like to another level. And you could speak on this. I, I'd ask you this because you could speak on this better. It's much larger. And so it's clearly getting much. harder to fill because you talk about the old side. When we were students. Remember in big games, you used to have to go to the games really early to make sure you got in the student section. Getting a ticket to the game and having a ticket to the game did not necessarily mean you got to get in there. I mean, the Alabama game. Hell no, it did Sideways up against the bleacher, like, you know, going, I'm sure, two and a half people to a seat, uh, to what should be one seat. Whereas I feel like that other, the new student section is much larger and they seem to have a more difficult time uh, one, filling it, but two, also making it look like it's full when kind of the, um, you know, maybe not so interested portion of the student crowd heads to the bars, um, which you see more and right. more in games that aren't close and all that. But that's something I've noticed as well. Is it harder to fill? Was it harder to find, like, seat? was it hard at all to find seats in the new one? Or could you pretty much just walk up and do whatever? What is that like? No, I mean, the new one from a sheer convenience standpoint, makes a lot more sense. I mean, when you're walking from the Grove, you walk straight through those first gates instead of having to walk around the stadium to get into the backside where the old student section was. I mean, it's really a lot more convenient, a lot easier to get into the games and everything, uh, but it's a lot bigger. I mean, I remember, you know, we always, of course, the 2014 Alabama game was a huge game, but they've had other huge games too. I mean, that's not the only one, but I mean, I left my date because she was like not, you know, on time I mean not necessarily on time but like she was like not really you know with it and understanding how big the game was I was like look I'm going in like yeah. see you later because uh, if I don't go in an hour if I don't go in an hour early I'm not getting a seat that is definitely not the case anymore uh, I think that is more due to the size than you know anything else but uh, I don't know what the issue I, I don't know the student issue I mean if you look at this game, they're playing Tulsa. It's three o'clock. It's hot as shit. They're up by three touchdowns at halftime. Yeah, I get why you're leaving. Um, it, it's kind of everywhere else that was that I'm more you know curious about and concerned with um, than than that. I mean, you know, Kiffin has has, has talked about it a lot. He has begged you know people to stay and students to stay. They don't give a shit, and maybe that's an old Miss thing, but it's probably not. It's kind of an everywhere thing. Um, so I don't know. I don't think there's a way to fix it, but I do think it's there's some interesting conversations on like the, the deeper issues than just, you know, oh, they're not going to the games. Maybe someone's note, maybe someone's out there to answer this question, but I would be interested when they did move the student section and make the luxury seating, uh, whatever you want to call that. Is it the end zone club? I forget, whatever the lower level new luxury the seating. The South club. end zone club. Yeah, yeah, it used to be. 
why did they do it that way instead of just build an entirely new one and bulldoze the crappy bleachers that used to be the away fan sections? I don't know why that's the case. You know what I mean? I, I have no clue, but it is something that I do think about a lot when you see that because, um, you know, it has had a negative effect on the, uh, on the environment. I'm not just, I'm not going to do the whole, we'll blame someone for not thinking this through. I, I that they're, look in all honesty do you think someone who runs the athletic department's had that job for a while was like hmm this is a terrible idea let's do it anyway there's probably a million more factors that goes into it than you know your average complainer online is going to uh is going to take into account I just that part of it is interesting to me and then they did expand the stadium at a time I I don't have an exact timeline on this and so I don't want to misspeak and sound like out of touch here but it does seem like in now in a day and age where you're getting smaller stadiums with more luxury seating and more compact, Ole Miss just kind of went bigger. I know that the end zone club is luxury seating, but, you know, ex- bowling the stadium in and it going all the way around, like in a time where stadiums were getting smaller, Ole Miss has got bigger. And, you know, 15 years ago, that's what everyone was clamoring for. And they were probably clamoring for it at the time. But, you know, that's another piece of this, right? Stadiums are downsizing and Ole Miss hasn't downsized any piece of it that I'm aware of. I don't know if that's coming. It's just something I've noticed as well. I just don't think there's a good solution to it. And I think it's just, I don't know. It's a problem that's probably not going to get fixed. I don't think you're going to suddenly get a larger swath of people, you know, at the game staying for longer. You're just not going to convince people to do, to do it. Um, and so I don't know what the solution is, but I think everything you just said is, is, is kind of in line with what I think about it um, as well. And so I, I don't know. It is what it is. Again, it won't matter. The big games, they're going to fill up. So, you know, um, I think it just is what it is from that standpoint. Um, kind of the last, I guess, thought on that piece of it. I don't want to do the whole message board, Kiffin might leave because they don't fill up the stadium. But it, I do just want to get your opinion on this. Last year, he harped on the crowd size um, almost to the point where it became a little weird. It was like, why are you bringing that up at this point? I get challenging the fans. I get harping on it maybe a couple of times when it looked bad, but he, he was doing it um in games where it wasn't even really that noticeable this year he's done the exact opposite every time you know he's been because of that he's been baited with questions about it and instead he's gone you know we didn't play well in the second half I wouldn't stay if I were the students it was a snooze fest we need to coach better whatever it is I don't think that's probably his true opinion one way or another how much stock do you think he puts into things like this and would it ever factor into a decision to go elsewhere I think there is a competitive advantage factor that he believes in. I think if you saw like kind of the atmosphere of Tennessee last year and some of the other atmospheres at Alabama that he's been at and he kind of sees Ole Miss, I mean, and it's just a a fact that that Ole Miss is not a loud, difficult place to play. It never has been, you know, even when I was there and they were really good and guess what? They're still really good and it's not loud and it's not intimidating but he wants it to be, and it's pretty clear. He wants the other team to be able to not be able to, you know, signal in plays. They want to be using silent counts. So he's thinking of it as, you know, begging for fans because he just wants the competitive advantage. Do I think that this is a reason for him to potentially leave in the future? Absolutely not. I think that is silly. Um, I think, I mean, you, the thing about the jobs that he would go to, I mean, I don't think he's going to Auburn, but everyone brings up UCLA. Well, guess what? That is broken forever. <laughs> that is awful. so. You know they will never have crowds there. So you know if that's you know really the thought process, I think that's a little ridiculous. Um, but I mean, it's his job to try to get people to go and more people to go and to market his program and to have new fans. Um, 
but I don't put all of it on him. I mean, I think at some point the administration has to look at this issue and try to find other avenues to fill it. Um, how that's going to happen, I do not know. I, I think you've got to find a way, you know, infrastructurally in Oxford where you're already so small. I mean, you are the smallest college town in the SEC. So you're going to struggle to fill it up with just your immediate, you know, citizens to find a way to get people to games, to help people get to games. Or if you don't want to spend that money and don't care, then you don't get to complain about it, administration or football team-wise. So, no, I, I don't think it's going to be a reason for him to ever leave. He'll leave because of money or because he's going to the NFL or, you know, Alabama showed up. I think a lot of those jobs that we've seen in the past, they're, they're not really available. I don't see him going to Arizona State out there in, in Tempe because – He's frustrated that, you know, only 45,000 people show up to see Tulsa play. Right. Uh, I, that's, I just really be really shocking, but you know, what? <laughs> crazier things have happened, but I don't think that would be the case. Something you said there made me think of this. Is there a base level? Is there a level he could win at to where it just fixes itself because it goes to that much level in terms of buy-in and support? I mean, I'll put it to you this way. I don't necessarily think this team is doing this, but look, it's a weird year. You know, they have some talent. God forbid he wins the West one time or goes to a college football playoff, do you think that kind of bump, that next level that Ole Miss fans have been clamoring for forever, changes any sort of thing about the turnout to where it just becomes so hard to – where it becomes a hot ticket to where it is hard to get tickets? Do you – I mean, we just outlined all the logistical stuff. Do you think that's possible? It's just kind of a base level thought I had. I think it is. I think there are tiers to this thing and layers to college football. I mean, Clemson – I think if you're Ole Miss – I don't know if you'll ever be able to go on a run like Clemson because you know, you're not in the ACC, but the ability to elevate your program to close to that changes, changes everything. I mean, at first, you know, it starts you know, just functionally with the amount of students that are enrolling in the university, your university grows, you get more money, you begin to invest in different ways. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a chance where if he continues on the track record that he's on, where this program elevates and elevates and elevates, then yeah, the outside grows with it. You know, it's kind of rising tides, raises all ships. That kind of, you know, foundational change can happen in a place like Ole Miss. The problem is every time Ole Miss, you know, sees this success and has the success, it, it finds a way to kind of shoot itself in the face. Um, it's never sustained. Ole Miss hasn't had consistent yeah. success as a program in, in decades. I mean, it really has. It's three, four years, and then way back down. It's a lot of peaks and valleys, and I really do. It's a good point. I think that does play into this. If you were a nine-win program for seven straight years and you flirted with the West and maybe won it once, that's a little different because the Ole Miss fans have endured a lot. I mean, the NCAA investigation was not that long ago. The used, end of the Houston nut era is kind of this in a nutshell. Um, Orgeron coming in, you know, a, a year after the, uh, the Cotton Bowl deal with Elon 03. Like, there are layers to this. I think a lack of kind of consistency – in that aspect is a piece of this as well. Ole Miss hasn't had been much of a consistent program. And Kiffin, to me, has kind of been the closest thing to building it so far. I mean, like he's doing it the quote-unquote, I don't say right way, I just mean in the sense like this guy clearly knows what he's doing and it's kind of for shaping up to be sustained long success versus like after, you know, Orgeron recruits left and you realize Houston Nutt didn't have any interest in recruiting. It's like, eh, I don't know about this. Freezes fall speak for themselves. So I do think that's a piece of it. Um, I don't know. It's a fascinating conversation. It's kind of a nauseating one in some senses too, just because it's probably not going to change, but I'm curious to see if they do look at some ways um, for that to be different. But um, last thing before we get out of here, just to bounce around the SEC, I thought it was kind of a quiet week. Again, I was a little bit out of pocket that uh, 
that Arkansas A&M game, I watched all that. That was awesome. I caught pieces of Florida, Tennessee. Just did anything stick out to the league? Is there anything you wanted to get to there? What, uh, what, what was kind of your opinion of college football landscape this week? Yeah, we can do, kind of do a little two-minute drill on it. I mean, Arkansas A&M, that game completely changed when K.J. Jefferson tried to, like, Superman Cam Newton into the end zone. They fumbled. I mean, they were going to go up, what was that, 21 to – seven yeah. yeah they were up 21 seven with like all momentum and that play just you know completely took it out of them it took them a whole quarter just to get you know back into it and then you know kj starts to play really well towards the end the defense steps up and they get down there that's a really bad fumbled snap sets him back a little bit and then yeah i mean he you know, doinks it, oinks it off the top of the, the goalpost. That that was a really tough loss for Arkansas in a game they really should have won. And I think you're seeing the spreads for next week reflect that. Um, I mean, Arkansas is getting a, a decent amount of respect against Bama. It's like 15, I think I saw, which is good, pretty good for them. And then AM is an underdog to Mississippi State next week because I don't think they're I, I don't think they're very good. They're athletic as hell on defense, but I just think functionally as a team, they're 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 not what they thought think they are, that's for sure. I think it's all on offense, too. I mean, they're, they had moments in that part of it, but you get the weird touchdown, as you just alluded to. That was my takeaway, was how in the hell did A&M win this game? Like, it was almost like the state LSU thing, where it's like, I don't know if both of these teams are good, but, like, did the better team win this game? Because I'm not necessarily sure that was the case. It happens all the time. Yeah, it's it a heartbreaking too. Like, for Arkansas, just the way that went down. What a weird – what a weird kick to where it goes off the top of the upright and then comes back down. I thought the only way I could tell on TV – was what actually happened was from the AM fans going nuts. I thought it might have dropped back inside the upright and gone in. I, I couldn't tell. It was a it was a wild, wild ending. And that was clearly the game of the uh the weekend. Um I just think Tennessee's pretty good and Florida was eh, quarterback. I thought Richardson had some moments, but it just was like yeah. one team just slightly better than the other and it proved to be that way. No, yeah. Florida knows. I mean Napier knows that, that team is is not where it needs to be at this point. I mean, they they could not run the ball for shit on Tennessee. And I think, you know, Tennessee on defense looked okay. I mean, Richardson played really well and kind of lit them up a little bit. Uh, but man, Tennessee's offense, if if you're just a little bit out of position, they will they will absolutely dice you for it. Um, I mean, they looked they looked good. I mean, they were at home, they had all the advantage. Um, I mean, they didn't even really win the turnover battle necessarily. I mean, Florida got some fourth downs, got some pretty fortunate bounces, and, you know, they ended up still winning the game. I, I think Tennessee's pretty good. Uh, I think that is not really something that's shocking. I've been pretty high on Heupel. And Hooker, like, is just a machine in that offense. He knows exactly what he's doing. He, he's so confident, and it. it's really impressive. Uh, they're, they're very good. Florida is just not there yet, but they're going to be. Uh, that I can guarantee. I'm buying into the uh, I'm buying into the Billy Napier thing too. Again, I just don't think it's there quite yet. A couple another weird result uh, things that I've kind of been harping on. Kansas State loses to Tulane and then goes to Oklahoma and wins the football game. Um, Notre Dame, look, it wasn't a great North Carolina team, but Notre Dame this is a Notre Dame team that lost to Marshall, almost lost to Cal. I don't necessarily have them going on the road wow. and winning. Gene Chizik is stealing a check from North Carolina right now. He is so out of his depth at that place. I mean, he is just not prepared. I mean, Notre Dame will not score 45 points on anyone else this season. That is not a good offense. Um, Chizik, that, that means a joke that he's he's there right now. That's the worst defense in power five, possibly. I uh, I forgot that was a Chizik defense. Honestly, I had not thought about it from that vantage point. I mean, one year is not so bad. Play. It's embarrassingly bad. Um. I think that was about it. I didn't mean anything else stand out college football wise. I know I could have missed a result or two, but 
not as being locked in, but I don't think anything else really. I mean, uh, Clemson pulled it out. Uh, DJ played pretty well. Um, the Clemson DBs are some of the worst I've ever seen. I mean, bad players, bad technique, bad body language, bad attitude. I mean, they were awful. I mean, they got absolutely torched for four quarters uh, against a pretty good Wake Forest team who runs a pretty unique uh, scheme and system. Uh, so they, they finished it out. I, I think they're good. They're, they're definitely not great. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, Jeff Collins got fired. They lost, uh, Florida state blanked Boston college, Florida state might Pretty be good. good. LSU blanks, New Mexico. They are slowly figuring it out. I don't know if they will be a great team this year. Uh, Daniels has been kind of efficient. He's not, he's not great, but he's definitely athletic. Um, Mississippi State beat a shit team. That's what Mike Leach does. Uh, what else happened? I mean, Oklahoma, that was a really weird loss. USC is, you know, statistically the most fraudulent team in the country. They have – they are winning the turnover battle around the country. They are 13-0 and in the turnover. They are plus 13, I think, in the turnover battle, uh, which is, like, unheard of through four games. That's like, outrageous. They are number one by, like, leaps and bounds. Uh, that team is good. They are not great. Um, I can't. Ohio State's a juggernaut. They are very they, good. You know, they ended that game in the first quarter. That was embarrassing. Uh, Tejas is not back. They lost to a Texas Tech team that is that's actually pretty good. They uh, they looked pretty good there. Oh, our favorite fraud coach of the year, Mario Cristobal, loses by thirty points to or not thirty points by twenty points to Middle Tennessee State at home. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's not great, Bob. No, I mean, he and Mel Tucker are absolutely stealing checks from their universities right now. I mean, it's just, it's a weird, I guess it's just a, a product of the market and the environment in college football, but neither of those guys have done anything to deserve $100 million contracts, and they are proving it even quicker than I could have imagined. It's, it's, it's insane what's been going on there, and I, I mean, I don't know if you have thoughts on it, but those two are stealing money right now. Mel, you're, it's a byproduct of the market. Mel Tucker played the market correctly. Congrats to him and his agent. But like, you know what I mean? Like, could we see 13 to 14 games of this before, you know, backing up the Brinks truck for this guy? He may end up being fired. They can't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they can't. They cannot afford to fire him because they're, I mean, the bull out, the, the, uh, the buyout is full. I mean, they, they, I think they have to pay him a hundred million dollars. I know the billionaire is the guy that kind of funded the whole deal, but I don't care how rich you are. $100 million is a lot of money. <laughs> That's what I meant, though. I didn't even think – I don't think they can fire him for sure. I just meant, like, what, what, like, did they jump the shark backing up the Brinks truck to pay him after that one stretch in 20 – what was that, 2019? 20, was it last year? It was last year. Was yeah, I guess it was last year because he was at Colorado for that. It's like, wow, you might have jumped the shark on that one. Uh, I'm not big on the crystal ball thing either. Um, but yeah, outside of that, I don't know. We got a, we got a ton of good games next week and I feel like it'll be a more eventful week in college football. And then to wrap it up, we have no soccer. Is that what you're reporting? You told me that's where we came on air. Nothing's happened in the EPL. Nothing that's worth talking about that they're in the international break right now. And they, ah. the, the European teams play the nation's league. The U S got punked by Japan. I don't really feel like going into it too much. Um, we maybe we'll do a world, we world cup. The world cup. <clears throat> No, we were in the World Cup. They was a friendly, but they, okay. they, you know, they got their ass kicked by, by Japan over in Germany. And they play Tuesday night. They play uh, Saudi Arabia, actually. Oh, let's go. <laughs> I'm going to be watching that. 
So there will be a lot of uh, a lot of think pieces on that one. But we'll get like a World Cup preview um, one of these weeks. It's coming up. It starts in like November. So one of the, one of these weeks, we'll maybe we'll get a World Cup preview. Uh, but no, no Premier League or anything really going on. So nothing to report. He is Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Rippy Wright's football correspondent. I appreciate the time as always, my man. And we'll do this next week with a – will they be back in EPL? We're going to have to make up soccer corner to the people. I think yeah. the pitchforks are – I can hear them rallying as we speak as we close this podcast. So we'll be back with a full-fledged soccer corner next week. Take it easy, my man. We'll talk to you soon. See you, man. All right, that was our show. I appreciate you making it to the end. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. We'll be back at it in the midweek. Buchanan, off on another trip. He's out for the midweek. We'll figure something else out there. Um, And then we will have fresh cuts on Friday. So big week with a big game ahead. Looking forward to diving into it. Appreciate you guys as always. And we'll be back on Wednesday.